What a fascinating yet challenging time to be a leader. And in this Leading by Nature series, I interview pioneering leaders from diverse organizations, exploring future fit leadership and organizational development. I'm Giles Hutchins, executive coach, senior advisor and author of many books, the latest being Leading by Nature, which explores the inner nature and outer nature of the organization and the inner and outer nature of the leader as they journey toward regenerative futures. Welcome to the Leading by Nature podcast with myself, Giles Hutchins, and my guest today, Herbrand Havakamp, Executive Director of World Benchmarking Alliance. Thank you so much, Herbrand, for being here with me today. Thank you, Giles, for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. So we're going to dive straight in. Uh, perhaps you can start by sharing a bit about WBA, its reason for being, its passion and its purpose. Thanks, Giles. I guess our story slash journey starts with the creation of the UN Sustainable Development Goals in 2015, which at least for me sparked the idea and the notion that uh, we can only get to those goals if we get the private sector, the world's most influential companies behind these goals. And that through a, a number of steps led to the creation of the World Benchmarking Alliance in 2019. And the idea of what we're trying to do is assess how the world's most influential companies are contributing to the SDGs or where they are perhaps undermining it. And the way we do that is by assessing them and comparing them to their peers and to the goals. So that creates sort of a public insight for everyone on where these companies stand and where action is lagging. Yeah, so you're essentially giving visibility and then therefore allowing people to start working out what's good and what's not good so they can bring it into their conscious awareness and make decisions around it. Exactly. I think it's very important that in this context of sustainable development, we show what good corporate performance looks like. But on the other hand, that we also create accountability for the companies that are lagging behind. Because if there's no accountability, then we're not really rewarding leadership uh, and we're not penalizing the laggards. And without such accountability, business won't and also really can't take the action that is needed to achieve the SDGs or the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Now, I'd like to ask you a bit about the evolving landscape, because this is, I mean, I've been in um, sustainable business now for well over 15 years. And even just in that time, the landscape and the terminology and definitions has, uh, has morphed significantly. And I think for many people um, getting involved now, it can feel like a little bit of a minefield. So the general um, flavor seems to be at the moment around ESG. And, and ESG investment. Now, of course, we've got carbon, the focus on carbon, um, greenhouse gases, scope three reporting, um, which will be great for you to touch on in a moment. But we also have rising up in interest, blue-green initiatives or green-blue initiatives, whichever takes your fancy, which is around sort of, you know, looking at water habitats, biodiversity, ecosystem services and so forth. How do you see all of this starting to evolve? You're right in the heart of it. What, what, what's your take on this evolution? Yeah, it's probably if you if you if you want to unpack that, it's if, if what I find helpful is to start where where all of these new expectations on business are coming from, and of course they are to a large extent the result of evolving societal expectations uh, and evolving scientific expectations, and a lot of that is sort of translating into what we then what become our sort of our our so becoming our global agenda, and that global agenda is in a way fundamentally expansive. Um, so if we think about it as the UN Sustainable Development Goals, in that same year, we created the Paris Agreement. 
just last year, we created the, uh, uh, the agreement on biodiversity. So in every step that the world is taking in further acknowledging what we need to do on sustainability, it's also expanding the agenda now to business. And where this used to be primarily an agenda for governments to deal with, we understand now as a world that we can't deal with that um, uh, without, without the private sector getting on board. And with that, of course, the expectations towards business are evolving. But these expectations are not universal. And I think a lot of the uh, why it can be a bit daunting is because the, the, universe, the expectations across the globe and from different stakeholders vary greatly. So there is the, you know, there is the expectation of society that we stay within our planetary boundaries, that we deal with inequality. Um, and some of those expectations have made it to the world of finance, uh, where financial institutions say, okay, if we want to invest in, in companies, then we need to understand how they are exposed to these risks, such as climate change or biodiversity loss or inequality. Uh, and we need to understand how they're impacting uh, those uh, uh, megatrends. And I think this is where the, the, the nuance and, and some of the confusion comes in, because um, a lot of the financial world, which is driving the ESG, is coming from this from a place of understanding risk. And this is pretty much where the majority of the ESG debate is. It's understanding how climate change, predominantly, but now increasingly biodiversity loss and inequality, might impact the business and the way that the business is dealing with those uh, sustainability trends. Um, and so, which is, I think, a very helpful development and something that needs to be encouraged. I th the, the risk is that we are, in that sense, forgetting or, or not really looking at the, 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 the effects the other way around. So how is the business impacting climate change, biodiversity and inequality? Now, this is not per se the interest of the majority of investors, right? Because their interest is mostly financial and therefore they want to understand how these things impact the financial flows of companies not so much about how the business is impacting sustainability itself. Um, and this is where you see a lot of differences in language, whether it's talking about impact or sustainability or ESG. And a lot of that differences in, in language and the way it evolves over time is, I think, a result of the fact that this agenda is constantly evolving and, exp and it's expansive. And the fact that it's, of course, articulated by different stakeholders who have different expectations and therefore try to create their own systems and language. This is interesting. Very good. I, I really like how you frame that. Um, what it begs me to then explore a little is, you know, when I used to be global head of sustainability many moons ago in corporate life, a lot of my work was focused on sort of the business case for sustainability. But there was always, and I emphasize a sort of like top line and a bottom line focus, you know, bottom line being about costs, about reducing risks, um, about making your, your business more able to adapt to these mega trends. The top line was about how creating what some people call shared value, Michael Porter's shared value, or creating impact in a way that actually enhances society, the environment through your value proposition. So this isn't just about being sustainable. This is actually value propositions that in some way enhance the shift towards a more sustainable or regenerative future. But that also future-proofs your business. Now, finance has, as you say, come from a kind of more risk management perspective. But there is more coming in now around sort of impact investment, looking at how we can invest in transformative solutions that actually help contribute to this future. Are you seeing, again, are you seeing that evolve, that mature? Yeah, I think the, the impact 
investment space, which was, let's be fair, was pretty niche. Uh, and although it made quite a lot of noise, it, it didn't have the skill yet. It is really growing. And I think the reason that it's growing is partly from a, is partly, as you say, from a sort of a more, that people are starting to see the opportunity. Because if you succeed in meeting those societal expectations, then there's probably a business there to be made as well. So I think on a very broad level, that is, that is true as well. I think another big shift that we see is, is more driven by the owners of the money that is invested. And uh, so more and more people are starting to become conscious about the impact of their finances and the way that it is invested. And because of that shift in awareness, uh, we see, and, and partly because a lot of capital is moving from, you know, the, in a way, the generation that made it to, you know, a generation that is now asked to take care of it, a younger generation, which generally speaking seems to have a greater awareness of how their their investments are impacting the world around them and, and the future of their future and the future of their children. I think we see a lot of demand, you know, for uh, investment strategies that have a very, you know, that are very conscious about what is the type of impact that I'm seeking to drive beyond making a financial return. It's interesting. The whole family office structure is changing. It used to be, as you know, I mean, very quite patriarchal in the fact that it always passed down the, to the um, the oldest son. That's changing. Um, so bringing in uh, more 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 women in in, in uh, senior positions within these investment houses and family offices, as well as as you say, the next generation coming in is really shifting uh, the strategy, uh, which is which is great. You know, it's it's bringing in more players now. I know you go to Davos um, as well as many other big conferences uh, and the recent Davos you mentioned um, in our um, conversations together about how actually the role of nature-based economics or nature-based solutions um, is coming in more or is becoming more prevalent in conversations and how you know biodiversity as well as carbon is now being seen as an important play. Is there anything you could say about that kind of blue-green investment that's coming in? Yeah, I think on a sort of very conceptual level, which we have, of course, understand have been understanding for a, for a very long time, is that you know everything is ultimately based, uh, all the value that we create is, is ultimately based on on nature, and um, whether that comes in the form of land or oceans or, or the minerals that we take out of everything, eventually finds its root in nature. Um, and of course, that's I mean that's fairly easy to understand on a conceptual level. I think what now everyone is starting to understand is that. Um, I, I guess sort of two things. One is that which used to be quite the belief is that there's only one sort of really big impact on nature, which is climate change. And I think we're now seeing a much more granular understanding from business that the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss uh, is not really climate change. You know, it's, it's land use change. It might be pollution. Of course, climate change is a big factor in it. But by solving climate change, we don't solve the nature question. You know. And so I think this understanding has become much more granular, informed by science. And that also means that business in a more granular way can start to look at how it's impacting nature and also how its dependencies are, are on nature, right? I mean, you could say that all business in the end is, of course, dependent on, on nature. Uh, but for some, that link is, of course, a lot more prevalent. If you're in the business of you know, catching fish and selling it, then, of course, your whole business model relies on the productivity of our oceans. Uh, and your whole business model is at risk if oceans are overexploited. Now, I mean, that's an easy example to understand, but these cases are basically in every business. And what companies are now starting to and trying to understand is how, you know, how they depend on how they impact nature and sort of making this sort of more global understanding of we all rely on nature more specific to their business. And of course, 
at the same time, it's the investment community waking up to that sort of that same notion and trying to understand uh, how businesses should understand those risks. I mean, this is powerful because on the one hand, there's a sort of slight danger of it all, all being turned into a slightly mechanistic sort of measured, you know, nature's utility and that we've now sort of fine arted our investment strategy. But on the other hand, there's a recognition that actually we are we are nature. And, and bringing that into our conscious awareness, which naturally involves the left hemisphere and its desire to mechanize. So I see it as a good thing because, you know, climate change is really a symptom downstream from a deeper underlying cause, which is the fact that we are no longer in harmony with nature. So getting back to that harmony and exploring that is 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 almost important. You know, it's a foundation from which this flows. So um, we've been exploring uh, so far on this conversation here, the sort of outer nature of WBA, you know, the way in which it shows up in the world and engages with um, companies through its benchmarking. Uh, now I'd like to uh, turn to the inner nature, the culture. You've got a fascinating organization that has grown uh, very quickly over the last few years. I think you now have around 100 employees uh, that are very diverse and all over the world. Um, how has your organization grown? How has it been challenged? And uh, uh, how, how do you go about the culture uh, um, as a sort of developmental uh, self-managing organization? Yeah, so I think there have been a couple of, of sort of notions that we had from the very beginning. Is like, first of all, if you start, you know, if you start an organization with the idea of holding the world's 2,000 most influential companies to account, then of course there is going to be a first realization like it doesn't matter if you grow to 100 people or 200 people it will forever be too small right because these companies together you know represent maybe 40 percent of global gdp so it doesn't matter how big your organization is going to be it's never you know big enough to match uh, that kind of resources and and knowledge and power that is there so i think from the very beginning there was this i think this notion that we that everyone that was involved in in creating the wba that it had to be an alliance, you know, that it had to be something that 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 builds on the work of others, that feeds into the work of others, that in a way manages to create a movement. And if that's, I think, if that's what you what we wanted to create in the external, you know, that's how we wanted to operate and work in our ecosystem. Uh, that meant that that diversity that is there externally that you want to work with, whether it's geographical or people working in the private sector or in the in public sector or in civil society, that you want that diversity to also be in your organization. Uh, because like, it's not that, you know, partners that you work with, it's not that they have to look in the mirror you know, and recognize themselves when they look at your organization, but they, they must see that it is an organization that is, you know, able to understand the context of Asia, that it's unable to understand the context of finance, that it does, have a little bit of understanding of what's happening in government. And that can only come through the people that you employ. Um, so I think diversity and, and what comes with that is inclusion has been a, a very big focus for our organization from the very beginning, both in the way that we, you know, that we built the, the, uh, uh, the supervisory board and the governance model, as well as, you know, how we recruit. Um, but it's not easy, um, you know, to build a diverse organization that's one thing, but then to also create a culture uh, where all these people with their different backgrounds can, you know, feel at home and be productive. That is the uh, that I think proves to be the real, real challenge. 
And that's what you're exploring. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating case study in itself. And I've had the pleasure of working with, with Honey, um, who looks after, uh, well, represents part of your culture and, and yourself. And your leadership team recently came here to Springwood Farm. We had a, a nice immersion here this, this spring. Um, explain to me a little bit about some of the challenges of trying to bring in a more teal or regenerative culture. You know, what, is it, what does that ask of you as a leader and a leadership team to work in a flatter, more self-managing way? So I think there's, there's a couple of things. I, I think from the very beginning, there has to be a, an understanding on not just why that you want to be teal because you like it, but that you have to understand and be able to explain how teal is serving, how working as a teal organization is serving your mission. Um, and so, you know, for example, one thing is that, you know, in, in one of the core principles in terms of decision making is that anyone can take any decision as long as you consult those that are impacted by the decision. That's a simple principle, but it's a hard principle to live with. Um, but I think if, you know, by, by working internally according to that principle, you know, and, and developing, therefore, skills that allow you to consult people and to, to take decisions and initiatives in that kind of a, a manner, in a way, it also sets you up to do that in the external world, right? So it also allows you then to work with allies and, you know, not be paralyzed by the amount of partners that you have to work with because you still have to take initiative and you still have to take the decision but you need to be become skillful in how you consult people and bring them along so i think that's an example of a, a principle that you try to apply internally um, that hopefully also sets uh, us up to be successful in that way of working externally so i think it's constantly finding sort of those um, external validations of the way that you work in the same way we, we we talked a little bit about diversity and inclusion i mean you can rightly you know, approach it from a moral point of view, right? That, you know, that organizations shouldn't be run uh, exclusively by uh, white men. Um, but I think there's also, and, and, and you know, that is in itself reason enough, but you, we also need to sort of figure out and, and work out, you know, how is a more diverse organization uh, going to help us become successful in our mission? And I talked a bit earlier in our conversation about that, in a sense that, you know, if you work with a diversity of stakeholders all over the world, then that needs to be reflected internally. And I think helping us build those, you know, those rationales from a sort of a more internally driven motivation, uh, morally driven motivation, as well as how it's serving our mission um, is really important and something that we're still uh, developing. Yeah. And it keeps it real by making it always grounded in uh, allowing the organization to flow more or allowing people to flow more rather than just doing it for a moral reason. It's also got to, you know, actually work on the ground. So um, why why come to Springwood? Just out of interest, why why bring a international leadership team into the woods for um, two days? Well, I think like to start for myself, um, I've never led an organization before right so this is the first one so it's like I, I i do everything based on what i know and and learn on the way um so i think there's a constant need um that at least is a need that i experienced every now and then you know almost checking with yourself referencing with, am i you know on what assumptions am i working and do they still suit the organization and, and do they and and where am i in my development so i think for me personal it's, it's important to take sort of these times out every now and then. I think 
in addition, if you if we if the, if we shifted a little bit to the team, I think what what I talked about in terms of what's true for the whole organization is also in in sort of a, in small true for the leadership team. That, you know, uh, five people from four different countries. Um, uh, you know, different cultures from the southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere. So, you know, really taking the time out as a as a team to work out how you bridge those differences and how you make diversity work um, uh, for the organization is, I think, really important because, in a way, if you know, if we as a leadership team can't get it right, you know, we can't expect the organization uh, to get it right. So, and I think. That, you know, taking time away from the organization and in this case, you know, coming to you in the forest and bringing you in as an external perspective to do the dynamics that are starting to play out between us and showing us different, you know, concepts and way of thinking and sometimes holding up the mirror um, is something I think you can only do by, you know, taking a step back from the day-to-day the -day work every now and then. It reminds me of um, someone I used to work with, um, a world leader around purpose. He said, you know, that one of the, the big things is to be able to pause, to step out and get perspective on things. And um, it was a real joy having you here. And um, you've come here now um, uh, a few times. And uh, I look forward to continuing that. Uh, we actually have an open program once a year where people can come and experience uh, an overnighter at Springwood um, so there's one coming up in July we still have a couple of places left if anyone's interested so if we now pivot to your journey as a leader your whole self your personal and professional journey um, how would you say that's unfolding for you like I, I, I think for someone like me I am very much um, driven by uh, ideas and you know things ideas that I would like to see realized in the world and it's sort of in a in a way that made me sort of stumble partly in this role and then in this organization. And I think it sort of so it's a very, you know, my my drives are in a way very mental. And I think what I'm starting to learn is um, you know, also being a, 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 trying to lead an organization, trying to build an organization. It you know it also requires me to look much deeper internally at what drives me at where I'm where my motivations ultimately come from where because you know if only if if I sort of create that understanding about myself um, you know I can I can ask that of other people um, and you know so I think that has been the the my in a way let's call it a journey from sort of this. Um, kid that had an idea and wanted to create it to now it being an organization and that organization of course demands a vision and a strategy and all of that but it also you know demands some someone that understands itself and has self-awareness and um uh, yeah and that's work um so that's that's the work i'm doing thank you and it's it's been a real honor to journey with you over the last few months uh, on our coaching journey and not only are you a a deep thinker but you're also uh, really connecting to the soul of WBA which is a very special organization what it's doing in this time so your work is uh, truly instrumental to the shift that we're experiencing in the world at the moment so any final tips before we sign off any final tips that you'd like to share to other leaders on this journey 
I guess sort of the thing I'm aware, starting to become aware of that every sort of meaningful thing that you, every meaningful change that you start, that you seek to pursue, um, you know, in, in our world as, an, as a civil society organization, it means that you have to develop a theory of change, right? And in business, it might, you might call it a strategy or something like that. It's, we, we have this always this tendency to place ourselves in the, at the center of that theory of change. And it's a, a bit absurd if you think about it, right? You want to do something about climate change or biodiversity loss, and you place yourself in the center of what needs to happen. But it's sort of a, a we, we can't really help ourselves. But I think one of the big sort of shifts is trying to work in, in what I think what it means for us as an organization is to place yourself within a much bigger system. And then it's very rare that you're actually in the center of it, if there is a center, right? So trying always trying to understand where you and where your organization sits in relation to all the other things uh, that are happening around you and let that inform you know where you focus on and what you do and where you take action um, I think it's something that I constantly need to remind myself of and and the rest of the organization because we all have this sort of we can't help ourselves we all have to look at the world through our own eyes and in doing so we unintentionally place ourselves in the center and I think that's Sort of every now and then stepping away from them and saying, okay, you know, what is it that we're seeking to change and where do I fit into that bigger picture? I think that shift in perspective um, uh, often causes you to take a different kind of action, a different kind of approach, reach out to other organizations and other people. Um, so if that's a tip, that would be mine. Oh, it's a powerful tip. I really like that. Um, being able to sense the expanding system that we're operating in and gain different perspectives on that, to have our own center of gravity, our own groundedness, but ability to then move and and, and get different perspectives and shape shifts. So we've been talking about self-awareness. We've been talking about systemic awareness. We've been talking about the evolution of the ESG landscape and, and so much more, teal and flatter structures and leadership and so on. It's been a real honor. Thank you very much for your time and contribution today, Herbrand. Thank you, Giles. Have a great day. For more on Leading by Nature, you can follow me, Giles Hutchins, on LinkedIn and visit gileshutchins.com for free downloads of tools and practices for regenerative leadership and future fit business. Also, watch out for my latest book, Leading by Nature, The Process of Becoming a Regenerative Leader.